Welcome to State of Wellbeing, a podcast from South Dakota State University. The State of Wellbeing is a holistic well-being podcast with the goal of supporting the campus community as we strive to be a growing, high-performing, and healthy university. Yeah, welcome to this episode of State of Wellbeing podcast. Uh, my, I'm your host, Jeremy Daniel. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice within the College of Pharmacy here at SDSU. And I'm also a psychiatric clinical pharmacist uh, out of Vera Bar- Behavioral Health based out of Sioux Falls. Um, we're joined by one of our counselors here today as a guest. Hi, I'm Julia Walker. I'm one of the counselors on campus here. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Julia. And just to get started and really set the tone for, for the podcast, in your opinion, what is anxiety? Anxiety. Uh, It's a buzzword for sure. Anxiety is, in my opinion, a big reaction to something very, very normal, very adaptive, very human. So anxiety is worry, nervousness, turned up to 11. Sure. Do you see a standard set of symptoms for everyone? Does that kind of present very differently with each individual? Mm, That's a very good question. So usually there are a couple criteria is the word that we use, especially if we're talking about the DSM-5 diagnosing. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of criteria that are pretty standard across most cases of anxiety. And you'll notice I say most cases where there are also a couple other criteria that may be present, may not be present. So how the DSM works is there's usually a list of maybe eight, nine, 10 different criteria. And they'll say that someone with anxiety or someone that thinks they have an anxiety disorder has to meet a certain number of those criteria and they need to be present for at least six months, if I'm remembering correctly. So a lot of the time, those big ones would be feeling a constant state of worry, stress, tense, tense muscles. um, And that would be causing potentially panic attacks, or it would be affecting their daily functioning and daily life. When it starts to become something distressing to you is when we would label it as something that is disordered. Sure. And I think, you know, one of the interesting points you mentioned is these symptoms have to be present for six months. But one of the things that I see in my practice quite often is, you know, six months feels like a long time, but quite often people that have an anxiety disorder have struggled with this for years. Um, And even though, you know, we we kind of set that high bar of six months, it seems to be a pretty chronic thing for most people. Yes, that would be true. Yeah. So we just say six months so that we can rule out that it's something caused. It's an anxiety caused by something specific. If it's something under six months, we would say, oh, you're having trouble adjusting to something. We have a separate diagnosis for that. But in all honesty, you're having a very normal and human reaction to something that should be distressing you. Sure. Uh, I think actually you bring up a, a very good question that might also be important to ask is you know, we talked about what is anxiety, but maybe another really important question is what isn't anxiety, right? What do we commonly call anxiety that isn't? Right. right. Yeah. So when someone says anxiety to me as a counselor, I think, okay, so they have the symptoms of a panic attack. And that would be they have a dry mouth, they feel warm or they feel really cold, their stomach drops, they have tunnel vision, they might be seeing stars. They probably are feeling like they're having a heart attack and that they're probably dying (laughs) is when that's what I immediately think of when someone says anxiety. But what I think what ends up happening is anything that would be termed at any level anxiety inducing. So that could be driving walking somewhere, meeting someone new, um, taking an exam or writing a paper, giving a presentation. That doesn't necessarily equal anxiety while it can induce worry and motivate you to do well. 
anxiety is a good thing in those circumstances. Sure. But you're having a normal reaction to something that should be stressing you out. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm huge on TED Talks. And uh, one of the, I can't remember exactly which TED Talk it is, but one of the pieces that was brought up in that TED Talk is, you know, anxiety, uh, if we kind of look at where it came from and, and our very distant ancestors, it, you know, physically it is a symptoms where it helps you focus better. It helps you get out of very scary situations. Absolutely. So if you're being chased by a leopard, right, it's mm -hmm. probably good to have those dilated pupils so that you can see where you're running, to have the increased focus on your breathing and maybe not as much on digesting the food that you just ate that now the leopard wants. Exactly. Um, but, you know, when that leopard then becomes an exam, mm -hmm. right, or that becomes, as you mentioned, just using a public restroom, right, or interacting with somebody new, and it rises to that level of really impacting your function, that's where it may not be as healthy, right? right? I think one of the other important things that, uh, that I'm wondering if you have thoughts of is, as we've just kind of seen social media come into play um, mm -hmm. as we talk about anxiety. And I think social media does a very good job of increasing awareness of mm -hmm. certain things that may not be um, you know, as focused on, but I think it can also maybe change words in the way that they actually mean. I mean, when I think from a mental health professional and somebody says that they're triggered by something, um, I think of PTSD, right? And they yep. have a form of trauma and they're, they're triggered by that. But I feel like triggered is also sometimes used just as a, a filler word um, for mm -hmm. something that you don't necessarily like, right? So mm -hmm. what impact do you think that you know social media media, be that, you know, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, has on our perceptions and awareness of anxiety? Mm -hmm. I think it definitely heightens <clears throat> anxiety where there wasn't anxiety before. Sure. There is obviously the psychological, sociological phenomenon that we want to belong to a group. We want to match the characteristics of the people in our group. So if we're on, you know, maybe... I don't know what they call it anymore. Mental illness talk. Mm, sure, sure. <laughs> Psych talk. Psych talk, yeah. Um, I haven't been on TikTok in a long time, so forgive me. Um, <laughs> some of those things, if you're constantly getting those videos on your For You page, you're going to be aware of it. Sure. So if you're looking for a red car, you see a red car mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. You might be looking for something that might not be there. So I think in a lot of ways, social media has heightened diagnoses hmm. or self-diagnoses and that's not necessarily a bad thing however it's when people are having these diagnoses experiencing these things and not doing anything about it sure. or not double checking um, double checking a diagnosis with a counselor or a primary care physician we don't just want someone to be anxious and panicking and just stewing in it mm -hmm. you know um, at that point, it doesn't really, I feel like sometimes social media can also glamorize mental illness when in reality, anxiety, truly you feel like you're dying sometimes or sure. you feel like everyone hates you. Um, you can't sleep for days because you can't turn your brain off. It's, it's not necessarily a glamorous thing. Um, so there's good and bad with social media. Yeah, I think we see quite often people come into my hospital down in Sioux Falls with, you know, a list of diagnoses they think they have, and that's mm -hmm. sort of analogous back to back to when I grew up um, of using WebMD to kind of diagnose oh your symptoms, goodness. right? Um, and you slept weird the night before, so your back hurts, and then you start putting your symptoms into WebMD, and all of a sudden you have a thyroid disorder or cancer or something like that, which it very well could be those things, or you could just sleep better, right, and maybe have a better mattress. Yeah, realistically, <laughs> what's going on here? Exactly. So I think that double check piece is extremely important, and you know, especially just as as times change, I think that I hear this quite often uh, with students that, that I have in my classes is, you know, as, as we talk about anxiety, one of their major questions is, how could I function or control that anxiety 
back in high school or in middle school, why am I struggling now mm-hmm. when I had just as much workload as I had before? You think you had just as much I workload as you did before. Because you're busy all day, you probably have after-school activities, <coughs> you maybe even have a job, and then you go to college and it's like, yeah, it's cool, I live where I do my school and all my friends are here, it's great, I don't even have to get in my car, they're down the hall. But there is so much more stress on college students. Mm. The stakes are much higher because now you're not just graduating to get your diploma, you're graduating to get a career that you will have for the next 60 years of your life. Exactly. So that's a lot of pressure. And it's expensive. Mm. That financial pressure puts a lot of stress and anxiety on people as well. They want to make it worth it. And we also want to do well. Sure. Grades are a huge motivator and a huge stressor for a lot of students. So college is a completely different beast than high school. Yeah, I think one of the other key pieces to highlight is, you know, a lot of our students that come to SDSU are not from Brookings mm-hmm. or not come close, right? And so, you know, especially if they if they grew up in a fairly small town, right, you have your very close support system around you. Mm-hmm. And even though you may have friends that come to school with you, they may not be your whole support system, right? And mm-hmm. so now you're moving away from your parents, your grandparents, or even, you know, neighbors. Uh, if you don't have a close relationship with your family, you still have that neighborly support. Um, you don't necessarily have that in the college environment. Yeah, you have a lot of firsts, and you feel like you're doing it on your own. Exactly. And I think just as, as the disease progresses, um, you certainly have some of those changes. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can talk on this for a little bit, or you did. Jeremy, you can definitely talk about this. Uh, what is the biological thing going on when someone is anxious? Yeah, so there are lots of chemicals in our brain, right? I kind of describe the brain as a chemical soup, just with all the different things that are released. And, you know, we have a couple different brain chemicals that we really focus on in anxiety. One of them is serotonin, mm-hmm. which I describe that as sort of our our great evener or leveler in the brain, um, where it kind of lobs off the highs and lobs off the lows and kind of keeps you running smooth sailing, right? Content. Yeah, exactly. And so as, as you know, th- that stops to work, as well, right? You certainly have those peaks or those lows, which actually is why we see such a high, you know, uh, co-diagnosis of anxiety and depression, right? Mm-hmm. Because serotonin plays a role in both. I think we also, especially in anxiety, focus on this chemical called norepinephrine, or the British would call it noradrenaline, if, if you're more familiar right, with yep. that. So mm-hmm. it kind of has that fight or flight piece, right? Mm-hmm. Where you feel really keyed up. Um, and so in anxiety, we sort of see this dysregulation is the term that we use, right? So it's not necessarily that you have too much or too little. It's just you don't have the right amount in certain parts of your brain. And those little, you know, receptors that it binds to in your brain aren't working as well. And Mm -hmm. that changes over time. And so that actually could even be a biological reason to some of the things that you chatted about as well, that, you know, maybe your serotonin was just off a little bit, but as your brain ages and as you're exposed to new things, all that's just getting just a little bit worse, right? But mm-hmm. the good thing is a lot of that is, is manageable, right? Um, it just it just takes kind of some different approaches uh, to manage anxiety. Mm-hmm. So what does anxiety treatment look like from your perspective as someone who prescribes medication? Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely going to turn this over to you for the other half because sure. I, feel like there are, <laughs> I feel like there are two parts to manage anxiety. I kind of think about it as the med side and the therapy side, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's really important just to note that Meds and therapy work so much better together than they each sure one do. on their own, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, especially for for anxiety, we have antidepressants. It's kind of our, our go-to, right? And again, I, I just talked about that we're talking about anxiety in this podcast, but I use the term antidepressants. That's more the general class that we talk about, but it fixes kind of both of those issues, right? right. And quite often, I, I find it very rare that someone just has anxiety without that mood component too. So it's kind of nice to have that on board. Um, but these are ones that people listening may be familiar with, like Prozac or Zoloft or Lexapro or Effexor, um, those types of 
of agents, um, because what they're going to do is try to rebalance some of those brain chemicals, right? But keep in mind, your anxiety didn't happen overnight, right? Julia, you mentioned six months of these symptoms, mm -hmm. and so it's and often quite often years uh, beyond that. Yeah. So these medications also don't work overnight, right? We're talking mm -hmm. three to four, up to four to six, even eight to 12 weeks in some people to truly have their full effect as we're increasing those doses, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that's why I think it's really important to engage in maybe more of a non-medication side as well. Um, and so I'll turn the question back on you. What does treatment look like to you for anxiety disorders? Right. So we like to say in psychology that there's a nature and nurture part to everything. So nature would be the chemical dysregulation that you're talking about, Jeremy. And the thing that might have triggered it is something nurture where you experienced a traumatic event or you didn't have a very supportive environment growing up. So we say that these things are in our genetic code, the nature part, and the nurture is what brings them into action. It's what um, activates them. Mm -hmm. So while, um, while we would say to someone who's had anxiety for a long, long time, their physical symptoms um, that would be managed by a medication are debilitating. Mm. So in order for them to work on anything in the brain realm, in their mind, that would be affecting their behavior. Um, sometimes it's helpful to have not a clean slate, but a baseline. Sure. So that's where the medication helps to come in. It, it's, it's taking care of those physical symptoms of anxiety um, so we can better address the I don't want to say metaphysical, the cognitive parts. <laughs> sure, right. The cognitive parts of those, those soft anxiety. pieces that come into anxiety. Yes. Right? <laughs> so that would be while maybe you're waiting for the medication to take its full effect over that four, six, eight weeks, um, you can be learning skills to change your thought patterns or recognize that, oh, my body is feeling this, so that means I need to take a step back. That mean I need to take a second and breathe, collect my thoughts. Um, learning the things that, you know, you. it'd be nice if we could take a medication and then suddenly have knowledge of how to fix the things going on in our body, but medication doesn't work that way. Um, so that's where therapy can come in. It can teach us those things that a medication can't cure. Right. Even then, therapy sometimes takes a long time to work, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I'm sure that you have met with many, many clients that you, know, you, you get a good baseline to start and you maybe help with some of those immediate skills, but it sometimes takes a while to, I mean, believe in yourself that you have the self-efficacy to mm -hmm. fix your own anxiety, right? Or at least make it a little bit better. Um, and so, you know, as, as we're talking about anxiety and, and these long-term treatments that can sometimes be a little bit disheartening for people, right? Because right. I have anxiety now. I've had it for at least six months, probably years. These therapies are going to take two to three months to really begin to kick in. I, I'm anxious. How can, how can I help now? And so I guess when we talk about the right now, mm -hmm. right, what, what types of things can people do to help with their anxiety in, in the moment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're all better. We're all motivated to feel better as soon as possible. Right. Um, so right in the moment, some of those coping skills may look like taking yourself out of the situation. Sure. So excusing yourself from class or, you know, while talking to your professor, letting them mm -hmm. know what's going on. Um, <coughs> maybe you just really can't give a presentation in front of a whole class, so maybe you can adapt it and then just give the presentation to just the professor. So taking yourself out of a situation or adapting things to what you would need in any certain situation. Um, some other things that are super helpful, we talk about breathing techniques. So 
Anytime you want to relax your body, you focus on having as long of an exhale as possible. And what that does is it hacks into our nervous system, the part of our nervous system that calms us down. And when we are emotionally calmed down, we're more, uh, more, more better able, we're better <laughs> able to um, access the logic in our brain. When we're anxious, we're thinking with our emotions. And the emotional part of our brain and the logic part of our brain do not communicate. Very true. So anything that you would want to do to immediately feel better is focusing on calming the physical body so that the emotional part of the brain isn't driving. So I already mentioned breathing and I mentioned taking yourself out of the situation. Some other th uh, sort of similar, similar vein, um, these are all things that we would call a grounding technique, sure. something that makes you feel stable and firm um, and grounded. So the other thing I would highly suggest is using your five senses. So hearing, sight, smell, touch, taste, um, using those to really focus on your environmental experience. So that would be maybe fidgeting with a pencil or um, having a fidget in class or really paying attention to the different texture in your clothing. Anything to change the spotlight from a spiral of negative thoughts to the environment. Sure. And I think, you know, as, as you bring up that logic part of your brain versus the emotional part of the brain, I mean, I can I can maybe tie that back into some of that biology piece because there, there mm -hmm. is a biology piece. When I talk about that fight or flight system, we talk about the sympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. right? And that's, again, the, the one that helps us run away from the leopard, right? Um, or sometimes helps us maybe focus better to give a presentation, right? Because right. now all of a sudden I'm, I'm able to think faster, more blood's going to my brain. Um, but then that rest or digest side, which sometimes called the parasympathetic nervous system, you know, that is maybe more connected to our logical piece because we're not as focused on that fight or flight. And so when you talk about breathing techniques, I think I've heard as referred to as like a four seven breathing technique mm -hmm. where you inhale for four counts, exhale for seven. Yep. You're kind of telling your brain, um, although forcing your brain to believe that you're not in a stressful situation, yeah. right? There is no leopard around the corner. And so you're able to breathe slower and focus on that exhale. And so mm -hmm. that almost forces that sympathetic nervous system down, raises that parasympathetic rest or digest up. Um, so you're able to maybe ground yourself a little bit better. Very right. well said. You said that much more concisely <laughs> than I did. Well, I think so that I that's the science it. side of things, right? right. <laughs> as we look, but it's right. all of those all of those grounding techniques um, and, and coping skills that you focused with really drive at trying to take power out of that sympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. right? And kind of train our brain to focus more on that parasympathetic. But again, that that takes time, right? and it does take a little bit of practice. Exactly. So I would encourage you, anyone listening, to practice any of these grounding skills and if you even if you just google google image or just google search grounding techniques mm. grounding skills any of them are helpful in some capacity whether they come from a doctor phd md master's level or someone's just saying this is what works for me mm. um, it has some validity to it so what i'm saying is if you search you will find something that is helpful for you right so um yeah, we're trying to take the physical body and convince the brain that we're calm. You know, it's hard for the brain to convince itself. Mm, you know, anyone saying like, have, have you just stopped? Like, just stop being anxious. Have you ever tried <laughs> not being so worried? Not only does that make us furious, it doesn't work. 
Well, I mean, the same could be said for any medical illness. Have you tried mm-hmm. just not having diabetes? I mean, if yeah. you flip that script and, and talk about a medical illness, have you tried not bleeding from a wound, right? It's, it's very, mm-hmm. it's very. you can't just shut that down, right? Mm-hmm. So very much the same with anxiety. That there's there's a medical side to that. It's not, it's not solely nurture, as you talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- those skills definitely take a little bit of time to develop. I think that as we look at those coping skills, I would be remiss if I didn't just comment that it's really important to find healthy coping skills that work yeah. for you. I sometimes see, especially you know, in my students or students that have graduated in the past, that sometimes turn to not quite as helpful coping skills, right? So, um, you look at, like, alcohol use because, yeah. I mean, we know that alcohol kind of, again, suppresses activity in the brain, and so that helps with anxiety. But in reality, that causes some chemical changes in the brain that actually make anxiety worse in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you're looking uh, for those coping skills, I think it's really important to vet them uh, to see what is actually sure. healthy and what's not as you're going through. Mm-hmm. Right? Very good point. Very good point. When you're searching for any sort of coping skill, any sort of grounding technique, like I mentioned before, uh, it's good to have a variety because you can have one that'll work one day. It might not work the next day or in a different circumstance. So it's good to have a couple couple that are reliable and a couple new ones to try if, you know, one isn't working or reliable isn't working that day. And the other important thing about these coping skills is that you don't want to try one for the first time when you're at a level 11. That's valid. You need practice. And the practice comes in all different forms. You can practice the breathing when you are trying to go to sleep um, so that you're aware of what it feels like to be calm and to feel grounded so that way you know okay this coping skill this coping skill is working um and the other thing that might be a little bit more i don't want to say safe maybe peer-reviewed empirical um with an e uh would be a couple of apps that we could find on our phone um a couple of podcasts even some youtube channels are very helpful um one that i really like to use is called PTSD Coach. Mm. Sounds really intense, but it's an app that was created by Veterans Affairs in the US, Mm -hmm. and they use it to either track symptoms or get you in contact with someone who uh, can help you if you're having a crisis. But there is a wonderful sub part of that app called Manage Symptoms, and it has about 20 just grounding skills. Mm -hmm. So the other good thing about that app is it helps you to rate the effectiveness of a coping oh, skill. Sure. So it has um, a, not a quiz, but a scale before any coping skill that says, how distressed are you right now mm. on a scale of one to 10? So maybe you put in a seven, you do a breathing technique that's led by someone. So you don't even have to think or um, you know try and look up something. It's there for you. Um, and an expert is leading you through it. And then after that, you can say, okay, what's my level of distress now? Okay, it's a four. All right, that did something. I went from sure. a seven to a four. So an app like that is really helpful. Yeah, I think the the challenge with apps, right, is there are so many out there. And just, mm-hmm. as, just as we talk about that, making sure that you vet uh, the appropriateness of any coping skill that you Google, I think it's really important to vet apps as well. And mm-hmm. one great resource that I refer to my patients and my students is this website called mindapps.org, and that's M-I-N-D-A-P-P-S.org. Um, it's run out of a, a hospital in Massachusetts, and I can't remember exactly which, which group runs that, but um, they essentially allow people to search for any app that they want 
want uh, based on a set of criteria. And so you can put in that you want it to be HIPAA compliant, right? Meaning that it will store your medical data and not set of third parties. Um, there can be a live component or solely a digital component. Um, it can focus on this particular disease condition or really any disease condition. Um, and you can run these search engines and it will then essentially give you a list of apps that fall within your search criteria along with expert reviews on those apps. Um, and so sometimes that can tell you whether the app that you're looking at that's free in the app store is really good or whether it's not all that great, right? So right. looking at like PTSD Coach run by the Veterans Affairs, uh, that's going to be a good source, mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, they they know anxiety, they know PTSD, right? That's, I've personally I, used it. Yes, and I, and I have worked in that environment for two right. years in my training. Um, so yes, I, I know that they, they do they do that very well with anxiety. Um, but, you know, again, just the an app called Fix My Anxiety may not actually fix your anxiety all that mm -hmm. well because it might not be the best. And so I really encourage my patients and my students to look at that mind, mindapps.org, right? Because that will give you all kinds of different coping skills, right? And enable you to practice ahead of time. I always give the analogy that you can't build an entire house just with a hammer, right? Mm. You need a lot of different tools to be able to do that. And so your breathing technique may work in a lot of situations, but if you're trying to put in a screw, right? Hammer's not really going to work in that situation. So you may need a different grounding technique than breathing, right? And better to make sure that you have tried your drill before uh, so you find out that the battery actually works when you're trying to screw that in. Exactly. Right? So practicing ahead of time, right? Yes. Now, we, we've had a lot of discussion, um, some at a science level, some therapy level, talking a lot about apps. And um, I would I would argue you're an expert in this field. I <laughs> normally don't like to claim that title for myself, but I, I, I do work in that field in that for 10 years. But mm -hmm. I mean, not everybody's an expert, nor are they going to be an expert overnight. Right? right. And I think that that sometimes leads to some even anxiety in trying to help others with anxiety. Am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I actually going to help because I'm not an expert? And Am I so, going to make it worse? <clears throat> exactly. So, I mean, even if we aren't experts, right, how can we help? How can we help students? How can we help faculty? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Honestly, and it seems like kind of an oversimplified answer, communicating. Yeah. You can... If you know anxiety is something that you manage on the daily, you can communicate that ahead of time with your professors or with your friends. Mm. And at the same time, if you're trying out some new coping skills, you can use your friend group, your social support to say like, hey, if you notice I am breathing really fast or I have a faraway look in my eye, get me to focus on something in my environment. Do this thing. Help hold me accountable to practicing this coping skill. Sure. So it would be nice for everyone to have knowledge of five to six grounding techniques mm -hmm. that they can pull out of their pocket at any given moment. But when it comes down to it, communicating. Mm. And anxiety isn't a scary thing. It can be scary for that person, but it's not scary for you to step in. Sure. So it can even just be the start of a conversation, communicating and saying, hey, you're not acting like yourself today. Mm. Is something going on? Do you need a minute? And actually listening right. and paying attention to what that person might be saying. Because a lot of the time, we don't want to talk about our problems. We're in the Midwest. We like mm -hmm. to keep exactly. keep things close to the chest. We don't want to talk about ourselves, especially the things, the negative things we're going through. Mm -hmm. So it might be like, oh, I'm just super tired. Yeah, I'm super stressed. It's like, how are you really? Right. When was the last time you ate something? Did you get good sleep? Asking these basic questions along the lines of, you know, are your basic needs taken care of? Mm. And if basic needs aren't being taken care of, it's a deeper conversation of, what do you need from me? And that can be something as simple as, 
an extension on a due date, or it can be being proactive and saying like, um, it can be proactive and putting in a syllabus, college is hard, we know it's difficult, you're right. going to experience a lot of new things, here's the information for the counseling center. If you're having any sort of mental distress or you're experiencing something new, come talk to me. Just even having that open door, students say that they are much happier going to their professors and talking to them um, with any sort of issue, not just mental health. Right, I think normalizing that is extremely key. Right, mm -hmm. there, there very much is this stigma against mental illness, and I hear from students all the time that finally tell me that they're having an issue, that I was just so nervous coming to you because I felt that you would view me differently or that would affect my grade or that would affect our relationship. And I'm like, I, I work in mental health, right? Mm -hmm. But I also am at heart a faculty member, yeah. right? And even though it may not seem like it after you get done with that really tough test, the faculty members do really care about you and they care about sure your do. well-being. Um, and we can do a better job being a faculty member if we know uh, what's actually going on with you. And maybe maybe you don't have a relationship with a faculty member. Maybe you have a relationship with a staff member that you work with, right? Yeah. That, that front desk person in your department, school, college, they may be your best person, right? And mm -hmm. so even if you are in that role as a staff member, as a faculty, I can encourage you to normalize that as much as possible. Right? I know at least in, in my classes when I'm teaching mental health to our pharmacy students, I do talk a lot about that, right? And talk about how I had some anxiety issues when I was in college, or even when I think back to my musical uh, performance days back in high school, I would get super anxious at a contest, right? And mm -hmm. it was really only my percussion teacher that could talk me down because my parents were not helpful in that aspect, right? They were like, <laughs> just deal with it. Um, so Just don't be anxious. Just don't be anxious, right? Just just don't have your medical condition. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's an extremely important piece for you know any faculty or staff listening is just to normalize it. But really important uh, piece that you mentioned for students as well is have that open communication, Right, um, because if your faculty member knows, they can they can better take care. And yeah. I mean, there are going to be times where the answer is no. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say nine times out of ten, when you express that you have issues, there's going to be things that they can do to help. Right, and you'll feel better about your own self-esteem because you you're taking that step and you're saying, I can control this. This is something I can do. I am motivated to do better. And sometimes you just can't deal with it on your own. Right. A lot of the time, you can't deal with it on your own. You just need a little bit of support. A lot of the time, if you tell a professor, like, hey, I deal with anxiety, so these things might happen, even just knowing that you talk to that professor can reduce your anxiety greatly. So you might not even need to talk to them about any sort of accommodation or extension. Exactly. And if, if you're listening to this for the first time it was released at the beginning of a semester, now is the best time to form that relationship. Right? Absolutely. I would, I would always tell students that the best time to form a relationship with a faculty member is the beginning of a semester, um, and the second best time is, is now, whenever mm -hmm. that is. Right. So even if it is before finals, still go in there and meet that faculty member and have that, have that interaction. I think you brought up another important piece that I want to highlight. You talked about you know, different people need different things when mm -hmm. it comes to anxiety, and sometimes just listening is really helpful. I know that one of the major changes I had to make early in my career is that when I would listen uh, to students, I would constantly be thinking of like, well, what am I going to say to that? What's the next piece I'm going to say to that? And what I quickly noticed is I'm no longer listening to the student. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out my own response, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or if I'm listening to a peer, I'm again just trying to figure out my own response. I found that I, I much better and I was able to help people a lot better if I just didn't think about what I was going to say while I was listening to them because crazy. Some, they also sometimes don't even need that, right? right. I mean, I've offered a couple of my friends with anxiety, do, do you want solutions or do you just want my ear, right? Um, what, what, is, what, is, what do you need right now? Mm -hmm. Do you need to be heard? Do you need a hug or do you need help, 
right? Mm-hmm. Those are kind of my three H's. Yes. Um, and so I think that's that's a really important step that even if you are an expert, you can take with anyone because that's just that's just being a good human. Yeah. Took the words right out of my mouth. Mm, that's fair. Well, and you know, Julia, again, I thank you a lot for for coming by today. I just want to give the opportunity. Any final thoughts on mm-hmm. our anxiety or pieces as we as we close out? Yeah. So. This episode should be coming out in the beginning of a semester. So you still, professors and faculty, if you have any chance to put information into your syllabus about the Counseling Center, now would be a great time. Um, All our information is on the SU State website. If you're ever concerned about a student as a faculty or staff member, you can fill out a student of concern form. Um, That's found on the SU State website. I believe it's on the uh, red folder page. Um, And if it isn't, feel free to call over to the Counseling Center. Um, student health center and they'll be able to direct you to where that is on the website Um, but then one of us counselors will be able to follow up with that student directly another thing to note is that we do have services available on campus for students if you're faculty and staff we do have wonderful people over in HR that will connect you with our um, employee assistance employee employee assistance program should you need it Um, so We're available at the Counseling Center for students. Unfortunately, we only see students. I would love to be able to see faculty, staff, any employee of the university. Um, At the same time, if you're not comfortable coming and talking to someone in person, there is always the National Suicide Hotline, which is by calling, texting 988. The number is 988. And those are master's level um, educated individuals. They're the same level of a counselor or a therapist. And... They're not there to make you feel in trouble or punish you. They're there to get you help and be supportive. So they can connect you with a lot of great resources if you're, you know, you don't have to be suicidal to call the National Suicide Hotline. It's what we like to call a warm line where it's just a warm, warm, comforting person on the other side. Um, You can also connect to 988 by calling the SD helpline, which is 211. You can call or text that number as well. Um, And if you run out of ideas and you're feeling like you don't have the knowledge to talk about anxiety or mental health in college, reach out to the Counseling Center and one of us would love to come talk to your class. So um, there are lots of resources available for you as faculty. There's lots of resources available for you as a, as a student. Um, the most important thing, as we've already touched on, we need to know that you need help. So don't be afraid to reach out. That's key. As, as we recap some of the, the high points today, just remember that anxiety has been going on for at least six months. Lots of physical symptoms, lots of mental health symptoms as well. And unfortunately, those overlap quite a bit and combine. But there is there's a biological reason for it, right? We have some dysregulation with a couple chemicals in our brain. And even though our medications really work to help with some of those symptoms, they sometimes take a long time. And so it's really important to get involved in some of those non-medicine-based approaches like therapy, going to visit the counseling center or seeing your own personal uh, therapist. I think it's also really important and just to note that even though those take time, there are things we can do here and now. And we certainly discussed quite a bit about coping skills that we can do, various grounding techniques, but you got to practice those beforehand. Lots of apps that can help you as well, but looking at mindapps.org to make sure that what you're using is actually a good resource. And you don't have to be an expert, right, to be able to help somebody with anxiety. I feel like you can just be a listening ear and just ask the question of, you know, do you, do you need help or advice or do you just need to be heard or can I just give you a hug, right, if you're comfortable doing that. Not not saying you have to hug everyone, right? Um, COVID is still a thing. COVID is still, COVID is still a thing. But you, you still could be at least that, that nice, warm person. So mm-hmm. um, thank you all uh, for listening to this episode of State of Wellbeing on Anxiety. Um, and we look forward to providing more information to you in the future. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of State of Wellbeing, a podcast from South Dakota State University. This podcast is brought to you by the Mental Wellbeing Team and SD State Health.